Hope you had a good afternoon, and uh, great to have you back in the Lord's house as we continue our biblical basis study here on Sunday night. Uh, it was good to have a week off, and I'm excited to dive right back in. And now we're kind of getting to the to the meat and potatoes of how it is that we got the Bible. Okay, that's what we've been talking about. Looks like everyone, as I look around, has been here at some point during our study, so you kind of know where we're where we've been and hopefully where we're going. But we're still in section two. How did we get the Bible? And tonight we're going to be in unit 2.2, an overview of Old Testament origins. An overview of Old Testament origins. So, before we dive in, in fact, let me just take a, real, uh, a moment here to take a real quick word of prayer and then we'll jump right in. Uh, Father, as we consider here tonight uh, what it is that you've given us with the Old Testament, Father, what a beautiful a beautiful revelation of, of you and of the truth of the world that you've created, Father. I, I just pray as uh, we consider the truth here tonight uh, that you'd be with us as we um, just give you all the praise, honor, and glory for not only inspiring the Word, but also making sure that the Word is bound together in a beautiful book that we call the Bible. We love it. We read it. We surrender to it, Father, because it is your Word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, I think when we start off, and I had some people ask these questions, and that's why I wanted to kind of start off with, you see the first point there, is it not written? Um, One of the reasons I wanted to start off talking about this is people often say, and I've heard critics say, well, how can you say the Bible was inspired of God and written by the people who participated in the stories that you read? Because back then they were an oral culture and they didn't write. Well, yeah, they were predominantly an oral culture in biblical times, especially in the very beginning, okay? If you're, if you're dialing it all the way back to when Genesis and, and Job is also one of the old books of the Bible, uh, when it was written, they were written in about 1400 B.C., and that was predominantly an oral culture. But we do know, historians have proven, that there was an alphabet that was in place by the second millennium, B.C., 2000 BC, we know that there was some type of alphabet in place. Now, when the alphabet first came into to play, again, around 2000 BC in the 2000s, here's what we know. We know based on history that the alphabet was very, very complicated. It was based not on letters at the very beginning, but symbols and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of symbols. And so only elite scribes had access to literacy. So it was predominantly an oral culture. Today, there are still oral cultures out there. I took a Bible story in class in in seminary, and it really blessed my heart because there are men and women who are going to plant churches in uh, primitive areas right now that have no gospel witness, but you you can't bring Gideons with you with a printed Bible because they can't read, and they don't have a Bible in their language, and so they have to story the Bible. So Bible storying, here's the process. If you go to an oral culture that's never heard the Bible, Instead of standing up and reading that in a way that they wouldn't understand, you, you memorize it and then tell it back in a narrative story format. And there are thousands upon thousands of people who are getting saved in that format. What you do is you gather around a group of people, typically the town tribe of you know, whatever group they're from, and you tell them the story. And they listen to the story. Then they repeat it back to you and ask you to say it again. Then you repeat it a second time and they listen and they repeat it back to you and ask you to do it maybe one more time. And then they listen and they repeat it back to you. And here's what happens. When you do that with a group of people and they're hearing the story and they're repeating it back to you, they are recording it in their memory as if they had something to write it down to where they preserve it. They preserve God's truth. And so in the beginning, obviously, predominantly oral cultures, that's how God's word was. I mean, it was proclaimed. We were, uh, the prophets were called to call out And those who heard it were called to retell what had been called out. But we do know there's proof of enough literacy to know that there was reading and writing in biblical times. So if you hear someone come up to you and say, well, you can't trust what's written because that had to be written hundreds of years after these events took place because they were an oral culture, that's not true. Because, again, around 2000 B.C., we have... We have proof of at least some type of alphabet. And then eventually the system got down from symbols to letters. And when there was less than 30 letters, then all of a sudden, literacy became something that everybody could have access to because it was a lot easier to teach and it was a lot easier to learn. 
But what proof do I have about this? Well, I think some of the proof that, that the early biblical times were illiterate culture, not illiterate, but a-literate culture, is that to look in the, in the stories of the Scriptures themselves. I think as we look into the Scriptures themselves, we see proof. All right, look down as we move on to number two. Let's read into it. We know, again, Genesis and Job are probably the two oldest books of the Bible written about 1400 B.C. We know that some type of alphabet had already been in place for hundreds of years. But if we don't have that proof, let's look into the Scriptures and see that God gave us His Word to a messenger who would eventually write it. All right, in Exodus 31, 18. Okay, this is the Ten Commandments. And it talks about when God delivered the Ten Commandments through Moses to the Israelites, what did he do? He wrote them using the finger of God. He wrote them on stone tablets. When Moses lost his cool and broke the tablets, he wrote them again on tablets. So Jesus, or excuse me, God the Father was writing Okay? They, he was writing in a language of some kind that they would understand because they took those tab- tablets and put them in the Ark of the Covenant in a way that they could take them with them so they can understand them. So we know at least as early as the time of Exodus when the Jewish people are leaving all right, Egypt and they're entering into the wilderness for 40 years, we know they had some type of understanding of reading and writing. Okay? Now, we get to your first blank. Let me read it and see if uh, anyone can guess what blank it is as far as chapter and verse. All right, Moses exhorts the people to write the commands of God on the doorposts of their houses and their gates. Anyone at least know the book and chapter? I'm sorry? No, it's a little bit further down the road than Exodus. It's actually Deuteronomy 6 because that's part of what's called the Shema. If you've never read Deuteronomy 6, in fact, I'll just go ahead and read it now. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is just a beautiful exposition of God's Word. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And here we are in verse 9. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So here's what we know based on that passage. We know that by the time of Exodus, the people had some type of understanding of reading and writing that when God gave His commands, He may have given most of it orally, and they may have proclaimed it orally. But as God inspires Moses to write these words down, I believe He wrote them down at a time that people can understand them because the critics of the Bible will say that, the, that Moses could never have written the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Most critics will say that, that could never have been Moses. It could never have been Moses because back when Moses was living through those stories, people did not read and write. Well, if they didn't read and write, why would God tell Moses to tell the people to write it on the doorpost? All right, there's your answer to the uh, critics who try to tell us that we can't trust in the Bible and what the Bible has to say. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, you may get to this line of argument with critics that will say, well, how did Moses write the Pentateuch when at the end of the Pentateuch it says that Moses died? Well, I believe one of two things could have happened. Either Moses, foreseeing the fact that he was going to die, wrote the final sentence before he died, or one of the scribes who was instructed after the death of Moses to conclude, conclude the book wrote the final paragraph or so that talked about the death of Moses. But I believe with all my heart, I don't care what type of new understanding or new study comes out that says the Bible, you know, the first five books of the Bible could not possibly have been written by Moses. When I see that Moses is, is listed as the writer here, and when I see in the New Testament people referring to Moses as writing those books, guess what? I believe it. I believe it. So I think we've got pretty good evidence in literacy very early on in biblical times. Let's look at some other examples. All right, look at Joshua 24, 26. During God's covenant renewal at Shechem, Joshua recorded the oral commitment of the Israelites to serve and obey God by writing the words of the event in the book of the law of God. So as God is inspiring these men, 
as he's inspiring Moses, as he's inspiring Joshua, as all of these things are taking place, what I believe is that they're writing them down. Now again, I know this is predominantly an oral culture, but God in his sovereignty knew much better than we do that one day he would want his words to get to a culture that's predominantly literate. Amen? And, and writing preserves that truth. And it has preserved it for us to be able to appreciate it and read it and study it and be changed by it today. All right, two more. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 12. I have a friend of mine at seminary named Marcus work with me in the registrar's office. He said this is my life verse because I have a fascination with books. Ecclesiastes 12, 12 makes a bold claim of, of this. Solomon says, Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. I've learned at seminary that's a very true statement. Uh, and I do love books, and I'm so grateful for them. But uh, by the time of Solomon, literacy and books became a, a treasure. Now, I would imagine that back then, Solomon being the wisest of the wise, but also the richest of the rich at that time, that books and literacy certainly were more so for the upper class, but it still was a part of society. And finally, Isaiah 29.11. The prophet Isaiah recorded a vision, and he referred to it as the words of a book that is sealed because some could not read it. Book, read, we see these things, writing, literacy, understanding. We've got proof all over the Old Testament that as old as these stories are, they're inspired of God, and that inspiration was written down in a book that we can trust. All right, so I think we've made a good case from the Bible about the writing of the Bible itself. So let's move on down to number three, coming up with a canon. This is a really important Bible word, all right? It's a word that maybe we don't use too much in the, uh, in the church because it really speaks about the Bible, but we need to understand the word canon. When I say canon, do not think about the piece of military weaponry that has balls shooting out of them. This is not a cannon that shoots out cannonballs. All right, cannon means the collection of the books in the Bible. So if somebody just would say to me, what's the, what's the biblical canon? I would say it's the 66 books, starting with Genesis, ending with Revelation. So when you say to me, well, how did these books get in the Bible? The real question is, how did they get into the canon? How did they get into that collection? How did we go from all the so-called books that were ever written that's claimed to be Scripture, how did we get from all those books down to 66 where the church universally, universally recognizes these 66 books? We're going to get to that later tonight, but I want to start by saying we need to understand the word canon because that's what it refers to. Now, how did I get the word canon? Well, I certainly did not come up with it. It comes from the Greek word canon, which originally meant reed or measuring rod, but later it came to be known as the norm or the rule. All right, so when we say canon, we mean what are the books that, that follow the measuring stick or follow the rule of Christianity? What are the books that line up with what we believe, that teach what we believe without any shred of falsehood whatsoever? What books line up with this measuring stick? Those are the ones that made it into what we call the canon of the Bible, all right? As, as Protestant Christians, we believe in a 66-book canon, all right? Some of our Catholic friends have other books in their Bible that we do not recognize as holy. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And even the Catholic Church does not call it the traditional canon. They call it something different, all right? Like we'll get to that. So I just wanted to, to present this idea of the word canon because I'm going to mention it a lot when we talk about what books made it into the Bible, and which books didn't. So, before we move on, as we move on down to point four, I know we're making some good time here. You may want to ask yourself this question. Maybe you've already asked yourself this question. Have you ever read the Old Testament and you see this history of the nation of Israel and you see the Bible in the Old Testament written about a certain people that we don't quite know or understand, pointing towards a law that we no longer live under, and you begin to ask yourself, well, why should I even read the Old Testament? I mean, that's Jewish Scripture, but I'm not Jewish. I'm a Christian. I live on the other side of the cross. Well, until we understand how much the Old Testament applies to us, we may not love and cherish and study and even read the Old Testament the way I believe that we should. All right, so I want to give us two reasons why I believe, as Christians, we should look at the whole Bible as Christian Scripture. All right, number one. Okay, here's another blank for you. Number one, 
All of God's Word is for all of God's people. All of God's Word is for all of God's people. He may have written it specifically addressing the nation of Israel, but the church is the fulfillment of what God first started through that nation. All right, and that leads me to number two. The nation of Israel is the beginning of the Christian story with Christ coming as the promised Messiah to fulfill the law's requirements. Simply put, if you rip your Bible in half and all you kept was the New Testament, and trust me when I say there are people who have done that. All right, Thomas Jefferson's a perfect example, one of our founding fathers. He has what is called the Jeffersonian Bible. I would not recommend you buy it. Because what Thomas Jefferson did, he was a brilliant man, but he loved his own intelligence more than the inspiration of God. He went into the Bible that we have with a pair of scissors and basically said, I'll decide what's truly God's word and what isn't. And what you have in the Jeffersonian Bible is a very, very small portion of what we have in our Bibles because he did not think there was any applicability to the Old Testament or even many books of the New Testament as well. But here's what I believe. I believe the first word of Genesis to the last word of Revelation is the word of God, that it is a complete story, that if you remove any of those books, you miss something that God intends for you to know, and that the Old Testament is is as much Christian scripture as the New Testament is. I believe that with all my heart. And the reason why is the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation points to Jesus Christ. All of it points to Jesus Christ. If you remember at the end of Luke, the story of the road to Emmaus and Jesus is walking down the road and you have these men that are, are, are walking after the, after the uh, crucifixion and they just can't understand what happened with Christ and the risen Christ meets them and finally they get to realize who he is and the Bible says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He taught them how all the scriptures pointed back to him and he pointed to the law, the prophets, and the writings which basically, as we'll see in a few moments, encapsulates the entire Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying, the Old Testament is about me. All right, We believe that as Christians. And so if we don't read the Old Testament, there's a, the New Testament just doesn't make any sense. Now, caveat to this. If a Christian comes to me and says, I've never read a Bible, where do I start? You know, the Old Testament is very difficult and it takes time to progressively understand the story. So yeah, I, I would recommend to them, read Genesis but spend a lot of time in the Gospels. All right? I don't think a, a, a new Christian needs to spend a year in Leviticus. I just, it's, not, it's not a place where I would start them off. But I would say don't completely erase the Old Testament. At least start with Genesis and find out why it is that we need a Savior. I mean, just think if even the third chapter of Genesis wasn't in your Bible. If there was no listing of the fall of man, and then in Genesis 3.15, if there was no promise of a Messiah to come, the rest of the Bible doesn't make any sense. So we, we need the Old Testament. We need it. It's Christian Scripture every bit as much as the New Testament is. And if we don't believe that, we're just going to let that side of our Bible collect dust, and I don't think we should. I've often said that if you had to pin me down and say, Bo, you can read one book the rest of your life, what would it be? For me, it would be the Psalms. Old Testament. Love the Psalms. Because they're so honest. And you know what's amazing too? We may not understand all the language of the Psalms. There's a lot of poetry in there and wisdom that comes from experiences in the nation of Israel that we don't understand because we're culturally divided from them. But the life experience, the life situations are exactly the same. They knew what it was to have enemies. They knew what it was to be persecuted. They knew what it was to lose loved ones. They knew what it was to question God. They knew what it was to, to yearn for redemption. So do we. The human condition hasn't changed. And that's the reason why the Old Testament is as applicable now as it's ever been. As it's ever been. So, I think we're making good time here as we complete number four and move on to number five. Let's get to the structure of Hebrew Scripture. I say Hebrew Scripture because it's the Scripture that came to us originally in Hebrew. And what I'm going to do here as we walk through this, a lot of, some of these facts were covered all the way back at the beginning in Unit 1.1. Some of this will be a little bit of review, but I'm building on top of that foundation with new information that I had not previously given you. All right, so let's walk through this together. Now that we have a solid foundation for what the canon is, let us further examine the next blank is scripture or structure. The structure of Hebrew scriptures. The structure of the Hebrew scriptures. 
So I want to talk about what our English Bibles look like, the Bible you have in your hand, and then I want to talk about the difference between what you have in your hand and the modern Hebrew Bible. All right, the scriptures that are still in Hebrew that are read by many uh, Jews today. Okay, there are some differences, and we need to know what those differences are. So, let me start with the size. Okay, we believe as Protestant evangelical Christians that there are 39 books of the Old Testament that are inspired words of God. Now, if you were to talk to a Jew, they would say to you, yes and no. They'd say, yes, we, I believe that the 39 books that you have in your Bible are from God, but I don't have 39 in my Bible. I've got 24. All right? So the way they broke down their Bible is a little different than ours, and here's how they do it. In the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Kings are just kings. So those two books are one. Also, First and Second Chronicles are just chronicles. Those two books are one. And Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. And finally, the 12 minor prophets are one book. So, if you have a Jewish friend and you're reasoning with him from the Scriptures and you say, well, I believe just like you believe these 39 books are inspired, and they say, well, I only got 24 in mine. It's the same books. It's just divided up differently. Okay? They've got 24, we've got 39, but the content is exactly the same. So that's the size. Okay? Let's talk about the language and the time span. Our English Bibles in the Old Testament are a translation of Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic. Aramaic was the common language at the time of Christ, and there's a little bit of Aramaic in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament and also the book of Ezra as well. But predominantly it's Hebrew, and that's what we translate from to have the English that we have today. And we know that these books were written between 1400 B.C. and then 430 B.C., ending with the book of Malachi. All right? So you're, you're spanning, you know, a pretty good chunk of time there. A little over a thousand years is what you're spanning from the beginning of Genesis all the way to Malachi. Uh, and again, most of it written in the original Hebrew. Okay, have you ever wondered how in the world we got chapters and verses in the Bible? Well, you're going to find out because God did not, when He inspired the authors to write these, the prophets were not writing down, okay, chapter 4, Go. All right, they were not writing down chapters and verses. That's not exactly how inspiration took place. <clears throat> All right, so, so let's, let's start with chapters, the big numbers. There are 929 chapters of the Old Testament, and these chapter divisions were first created by Stephen Langton in 1150. In, uh, well, he, was, he lived from 1150 to 1228, uh, but we know it was sometime in the 13th century that he did this. We don't know the exact year. We do know this. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he was teaching at the University of Paris, and he took some time, and he took the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he began to break it up into chapters so that when he was teaching it to his students, he could give them a reference point of where to go. Because basically what had, what had to happen before you had chapters and verses, you had to basically refer to stories. Turn with me to the book, turn with me to the burning bush. All right, then you've got you to gotta go to Exodus and you've got to scan through the text to find the burning bush. Well, Stephen Langton said, you know what? I think there's an easier way to do it. And so he began to enter in chapter divisions. All right, so finally there was a way that you could say, well, I think that's in chapter 5 of this book. All right, and that's how he broke it down. So we move on from chapters uh, to verses, Okay. Verses, there are 23,214 verses in the Old Testament, but these divisions were first standardized by the Ben Asher family, who are Jewish scribes, around A.D. 900. All right, so this happened well before the actual chapter divisions. So when Langton's chapter divisions came out, they revised the, uh, the, verse, the verse scheme a little bit so they would kind of match up together. But let me say this before I go any further. Just so you know this as we're reading Scripture. The Word of God is the fully inspired Word of God that we hold in our hands. The chapters and verses are not inspired divinely of God. They're not perfect. What they are are helpful. In fact, there are many scholars that say they would break up the chapters and the verses a lot differently. The problem is we've had them for so long, all you would do is muddy the water if you try to change the Bible verses. I mean, how many of us have memorized Scripture and we don't even want to think about having to rememorize where new verses are and new chapters in the Bible. So I don't think that'll ever change, nor do I think it should change. 
because we've we've gotten a well we've gotten along pretty well the last uh, you know if it was the 13th century we've gotten along pretty well the last however many centuries since they were implemented but we need to understand this they're not inspired I mean if you remember back when I was preaching through Jonah uh, when I started at the end of chapter one into chapter two I started with the last verse of chapter one and then I went into chapter two. And the reason I did that is because I believe in the original Hebrew, the natural breaking of that story should, should not have been broken off there at the end of chapter 1, but that last verse should have been part of chapter 2. It reads more fluently. It looks like a more easy flow of the text. And so that's why I did that. Uh, I do not believe they're inspired, but I respect them. I respect the chapters and verses because that's the structure that we understand. And when I memorize Scripture... You know, everyone in the world knows what John 3.16 is. What if John 3.16 eventually became John 3.15? All right, we'd have to start all the way back at square one, and I don't think the Christianity, I don't think we're in a place where we're ready to do that. So it's, it's the division that we stuck with early on. It's the chapters and verses that we'll probably have until Jesus comes back. All right, and I don't think they're bad at all. Okay, and that, that leads me finally to the arrangement of the Old Testament. We know its size, we know its language, we know its time span, its chapters and its verses. How about how the, it's actually put together? Well, I mentioned this all the way back in Unit 1.1, but in our English Bibles, we divide the Old Testament into five sections. All right, we've got the books of the law. That's the Pentateuch, the first five books of Scripture. That's Genesis through Deuteronomy. Then we've got books of history that talk about the history of Israel. All right, that's 12 books from Joshua to Esther. Then you've got poetry and wisdom. There's five of those. All right, that's Job through Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, whichever you want to refer to it as. Then you've got the major prophets, which is Isaiah through Daniel. And then the 12 minor prophets, which is Hosea. And that takes us all the way to Malachi. And by the way, one of the things we'll talk about when we talk about books of the Bible, books that never made it into the Bible, we believe that when Malachi was finished writing, uh, we believe there was a 400-year span of silence where God no longer spoke through prophets. There was no inspiration. And there's a lot of books that were written in that time span where people tried to, uh, to, to come off as, writ, as, as writing Scripture. But we know that God did not speak. That was a silent period of time before the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now the Hebrew Bible is broken down a little bit differently. The Hebrew Bible only has three sections. Again, if you have any Jewish friends and you're witnessing to them and you're talking about uh, your belief in the Old Testament and, and you're in agreement with them, they don't have five divisions like we do. Again, we got 39 books. They got 24, but it's the same books. We have it split into five divisions. They only have three, but it's the same books. All right, I just told you what our five are. Their three are just the law, the prophets, and the writings. Five books of the law, we're on the same page with that. Okay, those five are known as the Torah. The prophets, there's eight of those. All right, the Nabim is, is how you would say the prophets in, uh, in Hebrew. And then the writings, they're known as the Kethabim. And if I take Hebrew in two semesters and I can pronounce that a better way, I'll come back and correct myself. But that's what they're known as in the Hebrew Bible today. So that's the difference between what they have and what we have. Same books. All right, different size, they're split out differently, they're arranged differently, and composed differently. But the words are the exact same words. So if you have a Jewish neighbor or you have a Jewish friend, I would say reason with them from the Old Testament. All right, because we believe the same Old Testament, we just believe the story's been fulfilled. And they're just waiting for the story to be fulfilled. So you can reason with them. You can open up Isaiah and talk about the suffering servant and then point to the cross and say, there he is. You've been waiting for him. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. God laid on him the iniquity of us all, and by his wounds we are healed. Guess who he's talking about? He's talking about Jesus. All right, there you go. Now, as we get further along, let me just mention a few things. There's actually a string of theology out there, and it's, it's very um, intriguing to me, but I'm not saying I buy it hook, line, and sinker. It's called canonical theology. There are scholars out there that believe that God actually inspired the arrangement of the books in the original Hebrew Bible. And I heard all kinds of interesting proofs to this. One of them is the very last proverb. What is it? What's the last proverb that we have? It's about, it's about the uh, virtuous woman. Proverbs 31, right? Guess what the next book is in the Jewish canon? It's the book of Ruth. 
And so there's, there, there's, there's a lot of proof that kind of points towards the possibility that the original canon that was put together in the Hebrew Bible was put there by God for a certain purpose. Because you read about this virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, and then all of a sudden you get into Ruth and you see the manifestation of a Proverbs 31 woman. Again, I don't have enough proof to say that's fact. There's a lot of scholars out there pumping out a lot of books that believe it's true. I think that we have the Bible that God intended for us to have. I don't lose sleep over how it's arranged because it's, it's in one book. And that's, and that's basically what's most important. All right, so it's just something to think about. Pretty interesting. And let me say one last thing before we move on to, uh, to point number six. We're going to talk more about this in two more units, but have you ever heard of what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls? All right. I think it was in either 1948 or 49. I think it was 49. Uh, in 1949, I'll talk more about this in two units, but in 1949, uh, outside of, of Egypt, you had this uh, shepherd who was messing around, and they said he took a rock and threw it into a, a cave trying to get some of his sheep out of there, and he heard the sound of cracking, and he went in and found there was some, some uh, clay pottery in there that he cracked, and inside those pots were ancient scrolls that had been there from the Qumran community thousands of years before. But they were preserved. And when historians finally found all the scrolls and, put, and looked at them from thousands of years ago, they found almost an identical list of the books that we have in our Old Testament. All right, so your Jewish friends, again, would, would be in agreement with you that God certainly inspired the Old Testament because God preserved it, and we have proof from thousands of years before of what we have today. It's a pretty... It's, it's probably the best archaeological discovery that we have uh, of the 20th century. It's pretty amazing. We'll talk more about that in, uh, in two weeks. So, now we know the structure, and we're going to get to a really important question. How did they decide what books go in and what books don't? Okay, that's kind of the million-dollar question when you talk about uh, the canon of Scripture. But I want to make one thing very clear. Okay, if you look at your next blank here on... On uh, point six, here's what I want to say. God's people who participated throughout the timeline of canonical formation, which just means the books coming into the canon of the Bible, all right, so that these words made it in, they never determined which books were divine. They simply discovered. Your next blank is discovered which books were divine. So I have people all the time, and when I was in youth, they would always come up to me and say, who decided, Bo? Who decided what books made it into the Bible and which books didn't? And what I want to say is they did not decide. They discovered. They discovered which books truly had a divine quality that came from the mouth of God, and they discovered which ones didn't. Okay, it took time for that to happen. But there were also a couple of guidelines that we'll talk about that we can use to measure what truly is God's Word and what isn't? I always thought in my mind there was some special council that took place where they got together. If Southern Baptist, maybe it was a committee, right? The, uh, the Canon Committee. And the Canon Committee had donuts and Krispy Kremes, and they sat down and ate their donuts and spent a couple hours looking through all these books, and then they decided this one should get in and this one shouldn't. I don't think that's how it happened. I really don't. Um, but I do think there are some general guidelines that we can understand that were used in, not only for the Old Testament, but also for the New Testament as well. I've studied this at great length. I've read a lot of different books. And what I'm about to read to you are four reasons that are worded a little bit differently in every book that I've read, but they all get to the same thing. All right, what are some general guidelines for books that made it into Scripture and books that didn't make it into Scripture? Okay, here's the four. Number one, the credentials of the author. All right, the question to ask yourself is, was it written by a prophet an apostle or a direct associate under divine inspiration. All right, so the authors that are writing these books have credentials. They are men of God of high esteem who show their lives to be divinely inspired of God. All right, we do know there are some books like Hebrews in the New Testament and some of the Old Testament that we still wrestle with who was the author. All right, so if that was the only way that we could judge, we, we couldn't have Hebrews in there if we didn't know who the author was. But that's not the only question. That's not the only guideline. All right, number two, the truthfulness of the content. Did it come true if it was a prophecy? And is it consistent with the message of inspiration? Or excuse me, is it, is it consistent with the message of the other books with no contradictions? All right, one of the things that we'll see 
as we look at books that didn't make it into the Bible, is they contradict themselves all over the place. Well, the beautiful thing about this book, the more that you read it, you'll see a beautiful marriage of diversity yet unity. Okay, we talked about the genres. There's books of the law. There's books of history. There's books of poetry. We talked about the authors. Some were fishermen. All right, some were physicians. Some were tax collectors. And yet the message is not contradicted. Now, I'm reading the book of James here for the next few months, or at least weeks, here at Cedar Street on Sunday mornings. And there are some who would read James and see faith without works is dead and then go to the book of Romans, all right? And Paul says basically that we are not saved by works, we're saved by grace through faith. And you go back to these two things, but the closer that you study these books, the more that we realize they are not contradicting one another. It's hand in glove. You're saved by grace through faith. If you are saved, works will be the proof of your salvation. Jesus says you will know them by their fruit what type of tree they are. So for those that say there's a contradiction in Scripture, I would say let's go back to the book and make sure. Because every so-called contradiction that I've ran into, I've seen a logical explanation for why it is the way that it is. I'm not saying that every question or issue in the Bible is easy to resolve. It's not. There are some challenges there. But I don't believe the Bible contradicts itself in any way. I do not believe the critics that try to say you can't trust the Scripture because what is said here is contradicted here. I believe the more I've studied it, the more I see it does not contradict itself whatsoever. It's a beautiful union of diversity and unity together. All right, so that was number two. Number three, the supernatural power of the content are the words living and active with a supernatural quality. When you read the book, and if it's the Word of God, and you have the Spirit of God, I'm not saying that it is a cloud nine moment every single time you read it, but your spirit will testify to the Word that there's something different about the Bible than any other book. It's so rich. You know, sometimes I struggle to read large portions of Scripture because there's so much meat on the bone. I'll read a chapter, and then I'll just want to dine on that for hours. And, and then part of me saying, no, I want to keep up with this Bible reading list, and I want to read the next four chapters. But yet, there's so much there. There's so much there. When I read the Psalms, there's no book that does to me what the Psalms do. No book can do that. I mean, even what the psalm says about the Bible itself. If you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 119. I mean, I, I just, there's no other book that does this. I'm going to read just a little bit. I mean, most of you know Psalm 119. <clears throat> I mean, I'm just, I'm just going to, all right, I'm going to, uh, Psalm 19, I'm going to read 33 through 40. Just listen to this. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts and your righteousness. Give me life. Show me another book that talks like that. There's no power in any other book that does what this book can do. There's no other power that can do that. I, I remember when I lived in Excelsior, I was a, kind of a baby Christian. And I was in between jobs. I had left Pineland. I hadn't yet been called to be the youth pastor here. I had a little bit of time on my hands. And so one day I decided, or one week I decided to read through the Psalms out loud. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't quite understand everything I was reading. I still don't understand everything the Psalms have to say. But can I tell you something? There were moments when I read the Psalms out loud in Judy Forehand's country store, just in the living room, by myself, reading it out loud and weeping. And weeping. Because the Spirit of God was in union with the Word of God, changing the person of God. No other book can do that. No other book can do that. And so, when I read other books that have not made it into the Bible, 
in a minute I'm going to talk about what some of those books are. You can read them out loud and if you have the Spirit of God and if you read the Bible for any amount of time and you know what the Word of God is like, it's laughable that some people think these other books should make it into the Bible. There, I mean, there's, there are, are Gnostic Gospels, all right, books that, that are not true stories of Christ that talk about Jesus as a wizard. I mean, read, you read those, and they have, they have nothing to do with the real Jesus. And anyone who has the Spirit of God who's read the Gospels can read those and say, that's not, that's not God's Word. It doesn't line up with the rest of, this, of rest of this book. It doesn't have that supernatural quality. Lives have not been transformed and changed by people reading these other books. So that's number three. Number four, the universal acceptance of the content, which the question with that would be, did the people of God who originally received these writings universally recognize them as divine? All right. One of the reasons that we believe the New Testament that we have is as trustworthy as it is is because the New Testament churches read them for several decades before they were finally collected and, and, and recognized as divine. Time, over time, God proved which words were His and which words were not. That's part of the reason why people say, well, how come you didn't have a full collection of all the books if they were written by the end of the first century A.D., but you didn't have a full collection of a canon until... 200 years later, well, it took time. It took time for the churches to read them and test them and prove them that they were truly God's Word. But they were. And the churches accepted, accepted them as such. Again, when I read James for the next few weeks, I don't have any doubt that it's God's Word because long before Iris showed up on the scene, God used that letter to transform churches. Practical living, feet to the street type Christianity. That's what the book of James is all about. And again, God used that because it's His Word to build up His church. And all I'm going to do is be a servant to continue to let it be used in this church to grow this church the way God would have it grow. All right, so those are the four rules. The credentials of the author, the truthfulness of the content, the supernatural power of the content, and the universal acceptance of the content. All right, those are four things. Uh, we can, we'll add to that, especially when we get to the New Testament. There are certainly many scholars that say the time in which the letter was written is also really important because there are some letters that didn't make it into the Bible because they were written hundreds of years after the so-called events took place, but the books that we have were written within the lifetime of Jesus and are pretty reliable. So time is also an important credential that we'll talk about more specifically when we get to the New Testament. But those are four general guidelines that cover the Old Testament and the New Testament to say books that made it in and books that didn't. Now, uh, two more things and then, we'll, and then we'll pray out and have our business meeting. But um, number seven, are the lost books a lost cause? Why do I bring up lost books? There have been many a young Christian who've had their faith rocked by a liberal documentary on the History Channel or by a liberal scholar who may, may call themselves a believer in Jesus Christ but don't really believe the Bible that we have in our hands. All right, right now, there's a scholar at the University of North Carolina. His name is Bart Ehrman. And Bart Ehrman is a, a so-called Christian. I don't know if he's truly a believer or not, but he's a very liberal scholar, and he's written book after book about, uh, about how you can't trust the books that are in the Bible, and then he has made claims that there are certain books that didn't make it in that should have, and he's written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages <clears throat> excuse me, to try to prove certain books that should be in the Bible that never made it in. Well, I do not lose a wink of sleep over what he writes for several reasons. First of all, I believe that if God went to the trouble to inspire the Word, He would also superintend the process by which the Word came together. If He wanted us to have the Word, He would have protected the Word the way that He has all right, for the last couple thousand years. All right, so I believe that... I had a, a professor at seminary that said, if my secretary is competent enough to relay a message to me, I think God is competent enough to get His message to His people. And so I believe the book that we have today is incredibly reliable. But I also want to say this. So if you watch one of those documentaries and they show up right around Easter time every year on the, on, uh, the History Channel, <clears throat> or you read articles in uh, the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the Washington Post, all these things will come up. 
Dun, dun, dun. So-called lost book of the Bible. Scholars don't want you to know. Christians are dreading this new book that came out. None of these so-called lost books are lost to us. They weren't lost. They were, your next blank here in seven is rejected. They were not lost. They were rejected a long time ago. All right? When I say rejected books that didn't make it into the Bible, I'm talking about two collections of books. All right, here's the first collection. The first collection is what is known, this is a big word here, the Pseudopigrapha. The Pseudopigrapha is a collection of books written from 200 B.C. to 300 A.D. And here's why they called it the Pseudopigrapha. Pseudo means false, and pigrapha, graphe, graph, autograph, writing, false writings, false names. The Pseudopigrapha is a bunch of books that were written falsely, but attributed to a character in the Bible to try to make it look like it's Scripture. All right, there's the, the book of Adam and Eve, so-called written by Adam and Eve themselves. But we know Adam and Eve did, were not around in a literate you know, society. And I do not believe that Adam and Eve actually wrote a book of the Bible. All right, you have uh, the book of Baruch, who was the scribe that worked with Jeremiah. I do not believe that Baruch wrote his own book of the Bible. Um, I mean, just, there's so many other books about certain characters of the Bible. These are pseudopigrapha books because they're falsely attributed to characters to try to make them look like Scripture. But when you read the books, they don't line up with the Bible. They don't tell the same story the Bible tells. They're chock full of contradictions. All right? And one of the things that, that, that uh, well, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Let me just get to the second list here. The second list is the Apocrypha. Now, the Apocrypha is what the Catholics acknowledge as part of their Bible that we do not, all right? Because the Apocrypha is a collection of books that were written after the end of the Old Testament before the beginning of the New Testament, all right? That 400-year period of silence where we said that God did not speak. A lot, of, a lot of men wrote to try to fill that gap. Now, here's what I want to say. I'm not saying that what is the books, especially the Apocrypha, all right, the Pseudopigrapha books, they're rejected by everybody. The Apocrypha, there's books in the Apocrypha that are actually beneficial. They're just not God's Word. All right? Some of them record historical events that actually took place in the nation of Israel during that intertestamental period. First and second Maccabees is a part of the Apocrypha, and they tell us basically why it is that Hebrews celebrate Hanukkah, this time where that oil burned for eight straight nights in the temple. All right, there, there's, there's historical writings in these books that are actually helpful and somewhat trustworthy. However, they're not God's Word. All right, I may have a couple textbooks in my office that were really helpful in the Christian faith, but I'm not going to jam them in there between First and Second Thessalonians and call them God's Word because they're not inspired of God. What I'm saying to you tonight hopefully is helpful, but as I'm, pre- as I'm preaching or teaching to you, my words are not inspired of God. I may be anointed or, or God may be using me but, but I'm going to make mistakes. Every, you know, even tonight, as I walk through, as hard as I worked on the, on the sheet that we went through, there may be some, some errors in there I'm not aware of based on the study, the, the books that I studied. All right, so his, historical books can be helpful, but if they're not God's word, if they weren't inspired of God, they shouldn't be in God's book. All right, so that's, that's what I would say. If you come across those books, some of them can be actually uh, enjoyable to read and they may be helpful in some ways, but they're not, they're not the word of God. But we'll talk more about that in two units when I talk more specifically about what those books are all about. All right, so let me just close up with this. Dealing with distance and diversity. All right, your last blank there is distance. Let's go ahead and give that to you so you can fill that in. Why is it, again, that we struggle so much with understanding the Old Testament? When I meet a new Christian, I automatically assume that they're going to struggle with it because I don't know of a Christian who became a believer, opened the Old Testament, and it just made sense. All right, it's not going to make sense because two reasons, distance and diversity. All right, distance. It was written over a 3,000-year history. All right, that's a lot of time. And a lot of things took place in that time. And so we're not going to fully understand it. I believe the more that you study it, the more God's going to open it up to you for you to know what it means. I know a lot more now than I did when I first became a Christian, and if God enables me to pastor this church for decades to come, I'll be able to stand behind this pulpit in decades and say, I know more now than I did back then. 
So I think God will continue to grow our knowledge, but there's, there's, there's definitely a distance between the biblical times in ancient Israel and, and, and what we have today, so it takes a lot of time. But there's also diversity. There's cultures and customs that we cannot fully understand unless we really study the scholars that understood them. All right, That's not to say you have to be a scholar to understand the Old Testament, but I do believe it just takes time. And we should not let the obstacles of distance and diversity stop us. I want to say one last thing, and then we'll pray. Maybe one day I'll teach a whole series or a whole lesson on this, but I'll just give you a two-minute tidbit on this before I pray out. We don't live under the law, okay? The law has been fulfilled by Christ, which means all those legal requirements of the Old Testament those will not hold us guilty before God if we've placed our faith in Christ because Christ fulfilled them. And when we put our faith in him, God will see us as innocent and perfect, having fulfilled the law by his righteousness given to us through faith. But if we are not under the law, how do we apply the law? Because there's a lot of law in the Old Testament and it's the word of God. So what do we do with it? Well, scholars in recent years have come up with what I think is a very helpful way to interpret the law. And the law can be interpreted in three ways. There's three types of law. There's civil law, there's ceremonial law, and then there's moral law. All right, I believe Christ fulfilled all three of them. However, the application for us as believers is not the civil law. We don't live under Jewish culture, and there's not ceremonial law. We don't live under Jewish customs but the moral law. The morality of God is the same now that it's ever been. So if we don't live under the Jewish law, but the law of Christ, the moral aspect of God's law still applies to us as Christians. All right, the Ten Commandments are a perfect example. All right, thou shalt not commit adultery. All right, are we going to die and be stoned to death and go live in eternal hell if we, if we cheat on our spouse? No, there's forgiveness there, there's grace. But what's the moral aspect of that? Jesus says, If you even look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed the sin in your heart. He took the letter of the law and elevated it by bringing us the heart of the law. The heart of the law doesn't make the law any less. It makes it more. Now, Jesus fulfilled it, but he calls us to live it out. And so if the morality of the law that's presented in the Old Testament is still important for us as Christians, we can't just throw out the Old Testament. We don't need to be scared that we're going to be judged guilty and go to hell if we're believers. Because we're not called to fulfill the law. It's been fulfilled by Christ. But we're called to look into the law and say, what moral truth here? Where's the heart of that law that applies to me as a Christian? And oh, there's a lot of it in the Old Testament. And so I think it's God's word every bit as much as as the New Testament. I'm excited that uh, we continue to walk through the Old Testament. Uh, It's my goal that, um, I mentioned this this morning, that even though I go verse by verse through Scripture and it takes a lot of time to go through books, I don't mind pausing in one series to start another one. That way, in a given calendar year, I've given us something in the Old Testament, something in the New Testament, a gospel, and then a, maybe a, a doctrinal or topical series that deals with an issue in the Christian life. That's my goal every year to make sure I've given you one of all of those so that you have a steady diet of God's Word. And, uh, and I'm excited to go through James. It's a heavy book, but it's one that uh, God gave to us for a very specific purpose. So.